to uh, the text that we'll be looking at this morning. And if you're visiting, I do want to say again, welcome. It's great to have, always to have new faces in the room, and that's something that we don't want to take lightly. So thank you for being here this morning. Uh, This year, the fall and the spring, we've been in a study of the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book of the New Testament. It's the fourth of the four Gospels. And um, we've been just basically looking at who is Jesus, what did He say, what did He claim, what did He do. And we've uh, taken a break just the last last Sunday and this Sunday in light of uh, Palm Sunday and then Easter. And this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 16, and the text is there if you just want to follow in the order of worship. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. This this is a chapter that will be read a lot today, either in part or in whole. This, This chapter talks a lot about death and the resurrection. This is a text that is read and cited at funerals a good bit because of the same reason. It talks a lot about death and resurrection. I want to look at just this portion, uh, verses 16 through 26. And before I read this, I just I want you to keep two things in mind. Just tuck these away as, as we move toward this passage. The first is this, is that scholars are basically in agreement that this was written, this letter of 1 Corinthians, by the Apostle Paul and that it was written somewhere between 51 to 55 A.D. What that means is that it was written max 20 years after the events of the Gospels happened, which means it was written within the lifetime of lots and lots and lots of eyewitnesses to what he's talking about, that they're still walking around and they're still available. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. especially if you're churched and you've been around the Bible a lot, I want you to keep in mind that these words that we're about to read are written by a man that you first meet in the New Testament approving of the murder of a Christian man. In fact, he's holding the clothes of the men who are murdering this Christian man. And the first description of him is that he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is the guy that wrote what we're about to read. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that even in the minutes ahead, that we will taste and experience what Jesus said we needed to remember, and that is that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And oh, how we need to hear this. We pray that you would enable us to hear it. And you would put it into our heart of hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a man that, uh, an acquaintance of mine, uh, a minister, I don't know him well, but we know each other well enough to speak. But uh, he told me that when he was working up in uh, New York City, he was working in Greenwich Village to plant a new church in Greenwich Village. Now, if you know anything about Greenwich Village in New York, it's not what we would call, you know, the Bible Belt. And so you don't just, you know, set up your new church and hang out your shingle and people just line up for your, you know, your Easter service. Uh, and you get, you get a lot more, even folks who are from church to areas, people in New York are from everywhere in the world, but you just get a lot more, more non-traditional people. And he said one time that really was just striking to him, very noteworthy, was on an Easter Sunday. And he was preaching, of course, on the resurrection. And he was, you know, just celebrating it and proclaiming it and preaching from the Bible about it. And this, uh, this guy, a Greenwich Village guy, came up to him afterward. You know, people are walking out, shaking hands with the pastor. And, he's, and I cannot quote it verbatim. You'll understand why. But he comes up to, to this man and says, Okay, look, so he rose from the dead. So blanking what? All right. In a way, he verbalized what a lot of Bible belters probably are thinking and feeling deep down, but they won't say it. And, and I think that sometimes Easter is a weird experience for a lot of churchgoers because the, the, the sense of anticipation is high and churches really pull out the stops on Easter but sometimes there's really this internal feeling of, I think I should be more excited than I am, and I'm not totally sure I know why I'm supposed to be so excited. I mean, I do get the fact that if someone rose from the dead, that is a miracle. I get that. But we don't freak, about, freak out about the other miracles like this. And in a sense, what we're saying is, so what? In this text, the Apostle Paul, who again did not start out as a buddy of Jesus. Very antagonistic to Jesus, viewed him as a heretic, viewed his followers as a, sort of a heretical sect of Judaism to be absolutely wiped out. And then he met him. And he wrote things like this. All right, as he's answering this question of, so what, <clears throat> he draws from the Old Testament a term to get at the answer to that question. 
And it's actually an agricultural term. Did you catch what it was? Look in verse 20. He does it twice. In verses 20 and 23, he states that, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And look at what he calls him. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In verse 23, he calls him, again, Christ, the first fruits. Now, what I want to look at this morning is, what in the world does that mean? And I want to read you a quote. This is a quote from the Old Testament. This is a quote from what Paul would just call the Bible, the law. This is from the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible. This is the book that is sort of like the review that God's people have before they're about to leave the wilderness. They left Egypt 40 years ago. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. They're about to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land against every obstacle imaginable. And there's this review about who, who is God? Who are you? What has He commanded? What do you do when you get over there? And listen to what one of the commands was. When you come into the land... <clears throat> this is from Deuteronomy 26. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose, that ended up being Jerusalem, to make His name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Right now, so do you, do you get what he said? He says, when, when you get over there and you're not living in tents anymore, you're not nomads anymore, you get over there and you drive out these enemies and you have your own portion of land and you have your acres and your house and you grow your own crops, what I want you to do is at this certain time, the first of the harvest, take the first fruits, put them in a basket, take the basket to the place where I choose for my name to dwell, go to the tabernacle later, go to the temple, and say to the priest on duty, I declare to you that I have come into the promised land. Now, I want you to picture this. I want you to picture, what if I came up to you on the streets of downtown and said to you, just got this close to you, and I said, I declare to you that I am in South Carolina. I think, you know, you'd kind of get a sympathetic look on your face and kind of take me by the shoulders and say, I know that, Brian, and why don't we kind of step over here for a little bit and check your medications or, or whatever. It's, it's, that's obvious, you know. I know we're in South Carolina. We're surrounded by South Carolina. Everybody knows that. Why would God mandate that you come with a basket of this fruit <clears throat> and go into this temple and stand before a priest? Here's your little basket. I declare to you that I am now in the promised land. And why would those fruits be a great way of answering, so what? He rose from the dead. Now, I, want look, I want to look at two things about first fruits. The first is this. <clears throat> first fruits are factual. They're factual. And the second thing is this. First fruits tell a story bigger than our own. First fruits are factual. First fruits tell a story bigger than our own. 
if you came into the temple, go back to the guy with the basket of literal fruits, and you're standing there, and here are these figs or grapes, and you're standing in front of the priest, and maybe there's a line of people behind you, because, you know, harvest came in for the same time for everybody, right? What became tangibly real to you? Think about one of the first promises that God gives to His people. I mean, it's virtually the first as far as a people goes. God comes to a man named Abram. His name isn't even Abraham yet. He comes to Abram for no merit on his own. God just goes to him and says to him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the human standard of what God blessing a human being looks like. And then he says this, you see this land, Canaan? I'm going to give this land to your offspring. And Abraham never experienced that. And his son Isaac never experienced that. And his grandson Jacob never experienced that. And then later on for 400 years. In America's only experienced about, what, two-thirds of that amount as a nation. For 400 years, they are enslaved in Egypt. And then when they're released from there, for 40 years, they're in the wilderness. Nomads, no way to have your own house, no way to have your own crops. But if you were this Israelite, and you've crossed, or your ancestors have crossed the Jordan River, and you've got your yard, and you've got your land, and you've got your house, and you've got your crops, and here they are, and you're standing there, what becomes tangibly real? That when God makes a promise, it comes true. How true? So true that you can reach in the basket and take a grape in your fingers and eat it. That's how true it comes. Now think, think about what Paul says in verse 16. This is a beautiful example of how the Bible does not call you to dream nice, pious dreams. It moves you toward reality. It pushes you to be a realist. And what does Paul say? He says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Listen to verse 19. This is such a great admission. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A few years ago, somebody gave me this book. It's called Letter to a Christian Nation. It's written by a man who's very um, openly, avowedly an atheist. And it's, the letter is an open letter to the United States, to those who are professing Christians, to say, you're not realists. You're not rational. You're, you're, you're believing a fairy tale. And in the opening pages, he says something that is right on. Here's, I'm quoting him. Either the Bible is just an ordinary book written by mortals, or it isn't. Either Christ was divine or he was not. If the Bible is an ordinary book and Christ an ordinary man, the basic doctrine of Christianity is false. If the Bible is an ordinary book and Christ an ordinary man, the history of Christian theology is the story of bookish men parsing a collective delusion. If the basic tenets of Christianity are true, then there are some very grim surprises 
in store for non-believers like myself. You understand this. Now, it's amazing. You have an apostle and an atheist saying the same thing. That if this particular thing is not true, the whole thing falls apart. Paul grants that, but then what does he say in verse 20? But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, how does he know that? Let me read this to you. This is from the first part of this same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this to these Christians in Corinth. He says, For I delivered to you, I handed off to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve apostles, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that the way that I know this is true, first off, is that the Scripture said it would happen. It said He would die. It said He would be buried. It said He would rise from the dead. He said, that's first how I know it. It's in accordance with the Scriptures. But then He says, do you want verification for that? He said 500 people at one time saw Christ risen from the dead. Now, you might be able to get one or two people to buy into a really weird delusion and sort of keep the company line and say it the same way every time. Can you do it with 500? Can you do it with all the other eyewitnesses? And finally, Paul says, and if you want to talk to witnesses, people who witnessed the resurrection, you can talk to me because I guarantee you I hated this man. I was actually going down a road to go arrest and persecute followers of this man, and then I met him. Now, what is that saying? How is that happening like first fruits? It means this, that whether you are here this morning as a Christian or not, you either have or you probably will have the experience of just at some moment, it could be when you're folding a t-shirt, it could be, for those of you who do that kind of thing, you're folding a T-shirt. You're you're uh, you're doing some little errand. You're you're sitting at a stoplight, and you or you're lying in bed, trying to go to sleep. And the thought occurs to you, how do we know this is real? You know. I mean, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. I am in an intensely churchy place. How do I know that if I had been born in uh, Saudi Arabia or China? that I wouldn't believe something completely different. And I would look at the people who do believe this Christian stuff as they're the the ones that don't get it. How do I know that this is real? The Bible is a supernatural book. It promises and asserts weird things. I've mentioned this before. I've had the experience of sitting in a coffee house uh, in downtown Greenville and talking to somebody and hearing myself say things that sounds like you're talking about an extra
like you're sitting in coffee under okay free free advertising for coffee underground sitting in coffee underground sitting across from someone and i might say something like do you realize that god has said that he will raise us from the dead and in body and soul will be perfect forever and i've actually had the experience where i've seen the person at the table next to me and the coffee cup was going up and it stopped you know like who are these people and that's in greenville you know we're not in saudi arabia or china but all of us should, all of us if we are thinking if we have not turned off our minds should stop and say how do i know this is true and as somebody has said before what we really want is this watertight airtight argument equation to like you know throw down like a card on the table and go ha proves it doesn't it that just knocks out any questioner any skeptic god did not send an airtight argument he sent an airtight person there was an airtight resurrection and when you know that when you know that it's not just that and you know they killed him and they never found his body you can get rid of a body but it's not just that is that they did find his body he was walking around in it and speaking and addressing and blessing and he ascended into heaven in that body and thousands of people saw it that's the first fruit in the church's basket to say when he says to me that you are my adopted son or daughter one day you will be a co-heir with my son Jesus Christ you will inherit everything and you're sitting in your little car at the red light and you've got all this debt you can't pay and you feel like is this like is this a myth is this a regional myth the resurrection is the first fruit Christ is the first fruit that it's real the second thing is this First fruits tell a story bigger than our own. They tell a story bigger than our own. Go back to the guy with his basket at the temple standing before the priest with his grapes and figs in the basket. And again, harvest comes at the same time for everybody, right? And so as you're standing there, there're probably a line of people behind you with their baskets and their grapes and their figs. And what is that showing you? I want to read you another part from the Old Testament. This is from Leviticus 26. And God says this. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, he's speaking to the 12 tribes. He says, "If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season." and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely in other words i'm going to do this not just for individuals i'm going to do it for all my people i'm going to do it for this nation And as you're standing there this Israelite with his basket here's this line of people behind you 
Now, what is that telling you? Is that what God does in our lives, it affects individuals. It is true for each individual in whom He works. But it's not just about us. That His promises and His plan is so much larger and so much more sweeping than any individual or any one group. Look back at the text. What does it say in verses 21 and 22? It says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. He's going to name the man. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, what is he saying? He's saying this. Hey, Corinthians, look back at the beginning of the Bible. And there's a man. And his name is Adam. And just so that this is said, both that book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible never treats Adam as a mythic figure. Always as a real man in real time and space. Real history. And he says, all right, Corinthians, think back about what happened. Adam disobeyed. And he ushered in death. But when when Paul says that, does he just mean, yeah, Adam finally, later on, died? No, what is he talking about? He's saying, yeah, Adam died and Eve died. But when Adam disobeyed at the beginning of the Bible, everything died. That the earth had been paradise especially that garden that he lived in. And that all over the world you had this thing, this is a concept that Jewish culture loves. And it's a term that we need to know, shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean peace, love, and groovy feelings. And it doesn't just mean ending war. But shalom means when all the dynamics between God and us, and all the dynamics among ourselves, And all the dynamics between human beings and the creation, the earth, everything is right. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. You have joy. Human flourishing in all relationships are the way they're supposed to be. The earth is made beautiful and it's rightly used. That's shalom. When Adam sinned, he wrecked it. Wrecked it. And I know that the American impulse, the democratic impulse is to say, you know, we did not vote for him to represent us in that little transaction. And trust me, I understand that. I used to feel that in grade school. You know, I don't know why my thinking was this way, but if Adam hadn't sinned, I wouldn't be having to study for this right now. But I don't know if that holds water or not. But think about this. Okay, granted, it's a tough pill to swallow. The Bible never, it doesn't try to, When you on this, it just states it. He acted for all of us. It ushered it into reality. Here's the thing. If it's unfair for Him to act on our behalf, it's unfair for someone else to act on our behalf. And the bad news is, Adam acted and he wrecked it. What's the good news? Look in verse 24. Let's start in verse 23. It says that Christ is the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom 
to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is the first fruits. The resurrection shows us that this is not myth, that God's promises come true, this is real and it's factual and it's tangible. But what is real and factual and tangible? Is it just that, you know what, I can be forgiven for my sins. And when you look at clips of the ravages of war, or a suicide bomber, or poverty in Greenville, or how crushing it is to live in a land where the leadership is oppressing you, what it would be like to be a kid in North Korea. When you look at things like that, don't you hope that God is going to do something bigger than just, I'm going to have my sins forgiven and I'm going to go to heaven. And that's my little celestial pipeline. And the good news is the work of Christ, it is about individuals, but it is about so much more. Uh, This past week, my kids watched for the, I don't know what time, uh, Monsters, Inc., And I've got to say, between Pixar and DreamWorks, I'm a Pixar guy. So put that in your notes. Uh, But Monsters, Inc., at the end, there is this great scene where this, like the evil, sinister monster named Randall has this good monster, Sullivan, or as they call him, Sully, sort of right where he wants him. You know, almost all movies in this way where somebody's hanging off of something and the person walks over and they're going to like grind their knuckles into the, you know, into the corner. Well, Sully, the good, the good monster, he's hanging off the edge. You know, he's going to fall to his death. Randall is right over him. And this little girl who's been mistakenly brought from our world into the monster world is behind Randall. He has her. And she's been cared for by Sully, but Randall has her. And he's standing over Sully. And he says to him that he's going to get rid of him. And the last thing he says is, and hey, don't worry, I'll take care of the kid. And as soon as he says that, his head yanks back. And there's this little bundle of antennas he has in the middle of his head. The little girl has jumped on his back and grabbed the antennas and starts just riding him around the room. And she picks up a bat and begins to hit him. Randall, one of his monster powers is he can turn into these different shapes and forms or go invisible. And every time the girl hits him, he turns a different color. So she's just going, bam, bam, plaid, polka dot, solid, wham, wham, wham. And just beats him to a pulp. Sullivan crawls up, grabs Randall by the neck and the lower body. And this is great. He turns him to the girl. And the little girl looks at him, and she's wearing a little monster costume with the monsters. And she starts going, And Sully says, she's not scared of you anymore. Looks like you're out of a job. And the girl, smiling at Sully, safe. Now, okay, as you're hearing this, and considering other church options. 
you're probably anticipating, well, okay, and I get what you're saying, is that Christ, you know, he defeated scary death, and, and that gives us courage not to be scared. You know, neat point. It's neat for most of the room uh, because a lot of the room is under 40. But some of you, not all, but some of you, either have the genetics or the lifestyle or combination of those, that you're going to outlive all your favorite people. You'll bury all your friends. You will bury your spouse. And you will see that death is cruel. It touches everyone. No one gets out alive. And the resurrection, in a very real way, is Christ not only taking death, but taking every broken thing. It's Him taking not just death, but poverty, and spousal abuse, and child abuse, and depression, and loneliness, even loneliness around lots of people. And he's turning it around to the church and saying, she's not scared of you anymore. It looks like you're out of a job. And dispatching it. And I'm telling you, you wait until the judgment day when, when we see the women that we knew as little old churchy ladies, the little old church ladies that really believe this stuff. Wait till you see those women at the judgment day. Look you know, the ones who buried all their friends, buried a spouse, maybe buried their own children, when they look at death and they look at Satan and they tell them to go to hell. And when they say that, they won't be cussing. They will be verbalizing the very will of God. Christ, His life and His death, but His resurrection is the first fruits that this book is not myth. It is fact. It is real. But that the promises that God is not just going to save individuals, but He is going to make the new heavens and the new earth, it will come true. We know it because Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for we who this morning lack hope, lack cheer, lack confidence, or feel jaded, even toward these very things, we pray that you would do what no sermon can do, that you would do what no hymn or service could do, that you would by Your Spirit, make the glory of the resurrected Christ shine into hearts, into lives and homes, as we really are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.